Thank you for joining us for the PebCAC podcast, a weekly information security show featuring some all around good people. It is week 16 of 2021. I'm Chris Louie, and this week I'd like to thank each and every one of you who smashed that like button and gave us positive ratings. With me, I have Brian Deach. What's up, everyone? Brian Deach out of uh, Gilbert, Arizona. Happy to be here. Thanks again for having me, boys. And Glenn Medina, who's rocking a collared shirt today. Hi, everyone. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us as well. Really happy to be back for podcast number four. Combined, we have decades of information security experience and are here not just to educate, but to entertain. We've got some awesome stories for you this week, so sit back, relax, and keep being awesome. For our first story, we got some late-breaking news today that the FBI, the law enforcement agency here in the U.S., got a court order and was granted permission to nuke web shells from hacked exchange servers without telling the owners. A little bit of background on this. Last month, Microsoft patched some severe vulnerabilities in Microsoft Exchange, which allowed outside attackers the ability to run any code they wanted on the Exchange server. Many corporate environments use Exchange to handle their email, so a list of targeted companies and agencies is long and spans every vertical from retail to banking to even critical infrastructure. Since outside attackers were allowed to run their code on these Exchange mail servers, they often installed their own backdoors, and these backdoors are called web shells. That made sure that even if a company patched their Exchange server so it was no longer vulnerable, the attackers could use their own installed backdoor to get back into the corporate network. The FBI was just given permission to clean up all those backdoors without notifying the Exchange server owners. Brian, is this good for the world, or does it set a dangerous precedent? You know, good question. So I feel like this is a kind of an ongoing thing with me where I'm kind of surprised that, you know, there's technology. Last time I commented on Acer, then it was AOL email addresses. And now I'm finding out that exchange is still a thing. Like I wholeheartedly believe that I thought everyone was on Office 365 uh, purely. So uh, who knew? Well, maybe you guys knew that that was still around. Uh, You know, it's kind of interesting that, you know, this exploit was kind of, you know, there and in place. From the the idea that you know they could use it to expel email about the organization, you know, steal IP and whatnot, maybe even you know reset passwords, uh, you know, credential theft, and then to to the degree then you know they started seeing like ransomware, crypto miners, additional web shells that were out there, and then lo and behold, the the white knight, the FBI is coming through and doing the Lord's work. Uh, I I personally feel like. They were doing that. There's an ulterior motive here. There, there had to have been something else other than let's go out there and do, you know, some good guy work. Um, as part of the effort, right, they were going out and they were uh, copying the shell as evidence and then they would remove the shell from the, the, the vulnerable web server. The part that's kind of drives me nuts is they went out and did a good deed, but instead of doing the job 100%, they still left the exchange server vulnerable. Um, and I guess the the last outcome of this is now that you know there's an agenda to go out there and, and notify, as you mentioned, uh, you know the, the companies that they had gone out there and, and removed the shell. So something's going on in that that remote shell that you know the FBI thought was very uh, interesting at the, to say the least. What do you think, Chris? I'm conflicted about this because on the on the one hand, they are doing a good thing. 
fewer vulnerable servers on the internet. I don't care how you spin it. That that's a good thing. We don't want servers getting crypto mined. We don't want servers being used as botnets as part of some kind of massive DDoS attack. Vulnerable devices on the open internet. That that's a bad thing. So I'm happy the FBI is is doing that. And this goes to that discussion. We have black hat hackers, which are hackers that hack without permission for financial gain, no matter the cost. We have white hat hackers who hack for good with the full permission of the target they're trying to to attack. And in the middle, we have what's called a gray hat hacker. And I think the FBI is playing the part of a gray hat hacker here. Now, they had a court order, they have permission to do this work, but without the consent of the owners. And it reminds me of a story of, from a few years ago when when routers, uh, specifically made by Microtik, Microtik routers were vulnerable on the internet and there were hundreds or thousands of these devices out there being used as a botnet to launch DDoS attacks. Well, some hacker thought it'd be a good idea to take over these compromised routers, basically kicked out all the hackers and then did 100% of the job, like you said, Brian. He actually patched the back doors and made it so they were no longer vulnerable. What he did was illegal. He illegally modified, you know, he illegally accessed someone else's device, modified it by most international law. That That's an illegal act. But he was doing it for good. He was trying to shut down the botnets. He was trying to ensure that people didn't get hacked because there are even more severe consequences if that's the case. I remain a little bit conflicted, but I think what the FBI did, their action was good and fewer compromised servers out there is a good thing, and I think I can move on from that. Yeah, so I guess, Chris, in that case, is that two wrongs make a right on the microtech situation there? Because it was hackers already created bots, and then you had another guy come in and cor- correct it, but which was wrong, but it was right. So I, I can see where it's conflicting. You were saying something, Brian? Yeah, look, I, I kind of disagree uh, with, with Chris's evaluation on this. I, I don't know that they did that great of a job. I mean, they... They removed it, but they still left the, the gaping hole wide open for the next person to come through there and install another shell. And maybe the next shell will, you know, still leave, you know, maybe it will patch the vulnerability, but now it's still there, right? Like it's, that's, that's, that's not good in my opinion. I think it was kind of a, not a wholeheartedly great move, but, you know, uh, albeit incremental steps towards a, a good solution, maybe. Yeah, I, I think what we're failing to do is probably failing to read in between the li- in between the lines here is what did the FBI leave on there as their own shell to maybe figure <laughs> out what's going on here. Um, it, what's interesting is I was reading the article and it's like the, the FBI stated, uh, based on my training and experience, most of these victims are unlikely to remove the remaining web shells because the web shells are difficult to find due to their unique file names or paths or because the victims lack the technical ability to remove them on their own. It's like they didn't even give them a chance, though. <laughs> no consultation, no no anything. It's like, yeah. wow, that's that's pretty amazing. And pretty bold, I think. Yeah, I think we all need to get our aluminum hats right now because we're talking <laughs> a little bit of conspiracy theories. And, and Chris, on the on the Microtik, was that the, the Mirai one, the Mirai botnet by chance, or was that a different one? I can't recall. Yeah, it was it was either Mirai or Satori. It was one of those massive botnets that that it, I think it might have been Mirai, where it had a list of uh, compromised IoT devices with hard coded credentials or weak credentials, and they just added Microtik to this massive list of 
devices that it attempts to, to compromise. Mirai, that, that's a name I haven't heard in a while. No kidding. All right, on to our next topic. As security professionals, we get to see the dark underbelly of the web, sometimes called the darknet. And that exposes us to a lot of the bad stuff that's out there online. Some people would say our jobs make us paranoid. I like to think our job makes us aware of what's out there. Knowing what you know now, what keeps you up at night from a cybersecurity perspective? Glenn, as someone who spends a lot of time on the dark web, why don't you start us off? Okay, let's be very clear. I only used it once. I mistyped Silk Road, was searching for something and realized I didn't, <laughs> wasn't supposed to be there. And accidentally, I, I turned off my, cuter, uh, my monitor and that was the end of that. Actually, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so let, let's talk about this a little bit. It's things that keep me up at night. And I think we, we alluded to this on some of, in one of our other podcasts where uh, if you've watched like things like Enemy of the State, where the government is sitting there and and they're they're monitoring you. It's imagine that reversed, right? Where it's actually being used now by for by by hackers with malicious intent, and they're driving you to do the crazy things. And again, my mind starts to race about how crazy some of those events can be. Where you know, if you're driving a car in a Tesla and someone gets control of that, you know, can they cause an accident? I mean, that was rightfully so. I mean, if you watch The Net with Sandra Bullock, where the guy's in an airplane flying and he's getting ready to land and the hackers got into the guidance system and made the guy crash into, you know, into a hillside. Things like that. It's like, wow, this is this is really crazy stuff. And I'm glad that, you know, you work for, you know, you work for the good, right? I, I'm always thinking that uh, what we're trying to do here, uh, Chris and, and Brian together is, is trying to protect the innocent and, and help and, and do good in this world. So, Brian? Yeah, the, the one that kind of sticks out to me in probably the, the last part of this year has been, and well, last part of last year and the beginning of this year is, is actually China. And not like I'm, I'm, I'm afraid they're going to invade and attack, but, you know, I'm going to get judged on this one. So put your conspiracy theory hats on uh, for this particular <laughs> statement. I, I happen to believe that I, I, I think that China can successfully man in the middle TLS 1.2, even a strict transport like with PFS and TLS 1.3 uh, transparently. I think that they have the ability to uh, either span that traffic somehow, some way, or to intercept it and be able to manipulate that traffic. Um, I mean, all logic tells you that that's impossible. However, there is some social proof that I had seen from a customer and there's two sides of the coin, right? Their evidence was they're doing business in China. They're accessing a business critical website, like uh, we'll pick Dropbox. And in that business critical website, there was some type of information that was being moved. And the outcome was they opened up this file outside of China and the great firewall of China and they opened it up. And there was, there's evidence in there that basically said, there is a subset of this of this document that is now missing and that had been removed by the People's Republic of China. So on one side of the coin, I'm like, mm, I, I know how Dropbox, I know how Google work, right? Uh, that's at a very minimum, TLS 1.2 with PFS enabled. Uh, at even higher, it could be Quick Protocol, it could be TLS 1.3. 
So that makes me think, oh my gosh, are they actually able to do this? But then the the realist in me says, well, maybe it's not that. Maybe the the endpoint agent uh, or the endpoint device had been manipulated in some form or fashion before the packet actually hit the wire. It was intercepted at that point in time. I guess if I'm going to be real about it, maybe that's the alternative. What do you guys think? Is there, do you think that maybe that uh, TLS has been compromised? Or am I just uh, a giant conspiracy theorist right now? I think that this reminds me of that quote. I'm, I'm going to bungle it and someone can say what the real quote is. But it, it's something like science, to people who don't know science, appears to be magic. And I think that's the situation that, that we're in. Because we, we see things that we can't explain. And just because we can't explain it doesn't mean that there isn't a rational explanation behind it. We just don't know it yet. So I think it's not outside the realm of possibility. When we look at things like the when the NSA was hacked with the equation group drops and the exploits that they dropped, a lot of the things the NSA could do was really eye-opening. And to anyone that that didn't know about it you know, before the drops, it seemed like magic what the NSA could do. But after we got the drop, we got the exploits, we figured out how that worked. It's like, okay, well, no, well now we have a rational explanation of it. So just because we can't explain it doesn't mean it's not happening. Has anyone looked at the like the actual RFC to TLS 1.3? And they, they did a lot of cool things like zero RTT, and they, they retired a bunch of weak ciphers that are in there. But zero RTT is kind of interesting because it there's the idea that with TLS 1.3, you want it to be more secure and more fast, right? But with zero RTT, the client, you know, the, the user's computer can initiate a conversation without actually building up the actual SSL TLS handshake. And in that particular use case, that means there's no ephemeral keys. So if the connection had been recorded, right, and the, the private key had been confiscated, you would think that that needle in the haystack, that zero RTT request or post or whatever it is, could be replayed maliciously. And you think of like the, the, the direction that we're headed from a security standpoint, that we want to be more secure. This one kind of stands out to me. I'm like, why? Like, I understand the benefits of being able to initiate a conversation without building up the handshake. But at the same time, like this is a gaping hole. And I almost wonder if it was strategically put in there by somebody. Again, I'm wearing my conspiracy theory stat, but uh, I, I'm curious what you guys' thoughts on that. Wouldn't be the first time. Uh, if you look up, I think it was was it the Bcrypt library that the NSA intentionally made weak so that they could they could intercept it, or was it the Crypto AG that was actually owned by yep. the NSA in in Switzerland? It, again, it's not outside the realm of, of possibility. It's not the first time we would ever see a flaw in an RFC. Uh, but Brian, to answer your question, I have no problems falling asleep at night, so I don't need to spend time actually reading the technical RFCs. <laughs> he has no time, no problem falling asleep at night because he really doesn't sleep. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, for for me, you know, I think the most frightening thing is when something in the cyber world makes a jump to real world attacks. Think of Stuxnet, think of NotPetya, think of the Triton malware in Saudi Arabia, the Ukraine blackouts that happened in 2015 and 2016. Literally people sitting behind a keyboard doing real-world damage. NotPetya showed us how fragile the world's commerce is when the global shipper Maersk was shut down for weeks due to the NotPetya ransomware attack 
global trade effectively stopped. We actually saw this last month too when the Evergreen, that giant shipping container, attempted to Tokyo drift into the Suez Canal and shut down that major trade route for days. Now that wasn't a cyber attack, but when you think of how interconnected everything is today, we have just-in-time supply chains, even a one-day delay, that can mean the difference between $4 for a gallon of gas and $6 for a gallon of gas. Then we have stories of people trying to poison Florida man's drinking water by hacking into water treatment facilities. Now, if you dive into what happened there, that barely qualifies as a hack. But you know, what would we talk about if there were no Florida man? Now, before people start sending us angry emails, the term Florida man is an internet meme. You can go and look it up. It's hilarious. I really do mean all Floridians. I looked it up. And uh, it's pretty interesting what you're going to get back. So I'll leave that uh, to the audience to go research themselves. But uh, yeah, it was it was a good laugh for the for about a good uh, minute or two. So at this point in the podcast, I think we should all give ourselves a pat on the back. And I'll tell you why. Apple claims to have one of the largest podcast hosting platforms with over 2 million unique podcasts. A recent study by Amplify Media shows that that number is greatly inflated when you take into account how many episodes each podcast has. About 26% of that 2 million number, they've only got one episode, one and done. 44% only make it to three episodes. Since we are on episode number four right now, that puts us in the top 54% of podcasts by episodes on Apple's platform. House of pleasure. So congratulations, guys. We'll celebrate again on episode 10, which puts us in the top one-third of podcasts on Apple's platform. I want to talk about our favorite podcast, and I'll lead us off. Now, aside from the PebCAC podcast, obviously, my favorite podcast is Security Now, and it's on episode 813, which I hope we reach one day. Robinhood Snacks Daily is my must-listen-to everyday podcast where I get my business news and my stock market news. And the last one would be a painkiller already. That'd be, that's my favorite non-work, non-news podcast. It used to be a gaming podcast about Call of Duty, but now it's evolved into a current events show and the hosts talk like it's, it's poker night. So what's not to love? What podcast do you guys listen to? So I, I really like the Security Now podcast. I've been listening to that one for years. Uh, it would be really cool to actually have one of those guys come in and drop in some knowledge on our podcast, uh, you know, in the future. Uh, but outside of the, you know, the nerd wheels and propeller hats of, of life, uh, my other favorite one is actually Joe Rogan. And I can't tell you, like, how floored I am. Like, he is just amazing on there. And, and I can't tell. Like, I watched some of the videos and I can't tell if he's reading or if he just has crazy amounts of information off the top of his head. He's, you know, he delivers real well. And when he has guests on the on, on his podcast, he does a great job of managing different personalities from Elon Musk to uh, Neil Tyson uh, uh, Degrassi, I think is how you say it. Two polar opposite people. Right. And you can see at one point in time, uh, Neil is like uh, kind of over over talking um, uh, Joe Rogan uh, at certain points of the podcast and we're all human, right? Like I think I would get annoyed and, and I would probably escalate by trying to overspeak him. But if you sit there and you watch Joe's just like perfectly calculated, he just kind of sits back. 
He lets him talk over him and just kind of plows through it. And I think it's a unique characteristic. He's a great interviewer for sure. What about you, Glenn? Do you have any any favorite podcasts? Yeah, Joe. Joe is definitely one and Security Now, awesome. Um, I, I try and get out of the mental realm of listening to you know, current news or, or things that are going on with security. And I try and blank out. And one of the ones that I started just recently is uh, the In the Dark um, series. And it's about kind of murder mysteries that are going on or trying to solve or right, wrong, right the wrongs of things. The latest one that I'm on right now is um, Curtis, the season two Curtis Flowers story about a Mississippi man that was uh, uh, put in jail for 20 years and then it was tried six times um, and then finally acquitted 20 years later, right? So um, interesting story. It's a good read. Definitely something that gets your mind flowing as far as kind of the civil, civil, how civil liberties happened in the past and how to not make those same mistakes again. But again, just off track, different things. Uh, for me, it's just a get off track of off of what's going on with, in, the, in the world of computers and start listening to something else that uh, that's kind of grabs your attention there. Is that similar to, I, I think I had heard of one, well, let me take a step back. Have you guys ever watched the the Netflix series Mindhunter by chance? Have no, not. Have not. Okay. So that one's all about like FBI profiling, serial killers and whatnot. But I could have swore that there is a Mindhunter type of podcast about modern day crimes. I wonder if it's the same thing that you're listening to, Glenn. Yeah, I'll share it with you. So that yeah, way you'll uh, check it out. you can see it. Yeah. Yeah. One hint about security now, since we all, all mentioned that one, you could probably listen to it at one and a quarter speed and still not miss anything. So that's that's my pro tip on on that one. It's good to know, Chris. <laughs> now, for our final segment, it's going to be a rotating segment every week. This week, we're going to be discussing interview practice questions. Now, I have not prepared my other host on what my question will be, so it will simulate a real-life job interview. The question will be an actual question I got from a large tech company here in Silicon Valley when I was interviewing for a sales engineer position. So Brian, Glenn, if you were in charge of running a restaurant, how would you maximize revenue per square foot? (laughs) <laughs> and you made me go first. You're killing me. So with social distancing, right, this is really killing my revenue per square foot. But I would probably do some sort of uh, medieval chess with tables and whatnot and uh, definitely mark up. Oh, this is my million dollar idea. So mark up the food, right? But I would also start off with a sign. No menus. This is a sign for the alcohol menu period, right? So when you get in there. Every, like the menu's like, hey, beers are only a dollar, shots are 50 cents. You're like, man, this is awesome. So you give the bartender your card, and then as the night goes through and the more and more you start drinking, that, that sign is dynamically shifting. So all of a sudden, that beer now becomes $2, then to 3 then to the $10, and you close out at the end of the night. Boom, I am rich, you are broke, and you're inebriated. Good luck fighting that in court. Thank you very much. I won this battle. Uh, that's a good one. I, you know, I, I think of that DJ and I just I have to laugh. And I'm I'm probably on the same lines with you. It's like, oh God, how can how can you do this? And I'm a, I'm always trying to calculate what what I can get for as far as a bang for my buck. And I, I think the best one would probably do something like either picnic tables where everybody has to sit at a table and you're kind of arm to arm, 
um, next to each other. Um, again, that's pre-COVID or post-COVID once everyone gets their shots um, or whatever, right? Once we make it past this this big, this hump here. Um, but yeah, or the other way to do it would be like, hey, no seating, standing only. And you just have it where it's like food trucks. Have you seen those food truck sensations where it's like, the food's not that great, but for some reason they got on some TV show and they got the greatest readings. And the next thing you know, the line's out the door. Um, yeah, I, I said lots of ideas in my head. I think the best one would probably just not not as good as yours, Brian, with the rotating um, beer menu with an increasing interval of, of, of amounts that no one will probably ever notice. Um, but yeah, just trying to pack people in and, and charge as much as I can based off of some TV review. Dude, off of the, the food truck, there's one in particular that we had seen, I think, on, uh, shoot, I forget the name of the TV show where you take it, oh, Shark Tank, and it was Cousins Maine Lobster, and they have a food truck here in Arizona, and about every two to three months, we'll go looking for it, and it's amazing, but it's also $23 for a freaking sandwich, but it is, it's great, and they, yeah, yeah. they get a great review, social proof, right? Go for it, yeah. 100%. That's exactly it. Oh, I've got one. So Chris and, and Brian, I, I had to dig in my memory bank here and remembered something that was like one of the oddest things I heard from one of a colleagues of mine. And uh, they got this interview question. What's one fact that's not in your LinkedIn profile? So it's pretty revealing. It's like, uh oh, what don't I want to tell about myself? Or maybe what do I want to tell about myself that maybe others don't know about? So Chris or, or Brian? You said, what's one fact that's not in your LinkedIn profile? So I'm going to take it a different direction. Since you didn't say anything, that the fact had to be about me. I'll, I'll give you a fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> when you have letters that stand for words like, uh, like NASA or SCUBA or FBI, it's actually only called an acronym when you say the word like NASA or SCUBA. FBI is technically not an acronym it's an initialism so that's a fun fact Interesting. i did not know that so my fact i guess would be that's not on my linkedin profile like i i think i separate you know business from pleasure pretty well uh so i mean obviously from a fact standpoint i love basketball i love playing it uh i have i, I would borderline say that i would gamble on it with uh friends and, and whatnot as far as performance is concerned so that, that, that would be mine. What about you, Glenn? What's a fun fact about you that's not on your LinkedIn profile? I was a bartender. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I served that. to the drunken masses in San Antonio. So that was a, it was a fun time in my life. <laughs> not yeah. in my LinkedIn profile, of course. So. All right. I, I, let's play the uh, real quick role play there, Glenn. I'll be the interviewer, and uh, you can be the interviewee. One question as well, and you have to take it from the context that I know who you are coming into it. And so I, I actually did this the other day, and it shook the, the participants. So we jo joined the Zoom, and he's like, hey, how's it going? I'm like, I'm, like, I'm good. I'm like, I know that you were Glenn, right? But it, uh, I, I opened literally with this. All right, Terry, you got 30 minutes. Go ahead and uh, blow my mind. <laughs> and just quiet. First person who talks loses. And this poor guy... Oh my God. I, I felt so terrible for him because I, I let it go for, for a couple minutes. And I was like, dude, I'm just messing with you. But it, it, it rattled him pretty bad. Just to, just to call him. <laughs> That's funny. 
get the name wrong and then just be like is that like very dismissive and zero interest like just go ahead and show me what you got man <laughs> we'll have to try that big power move brian comments about our dad joke of the week dad joke of the week djow this week it's my turn how many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh 10 tickles Oh boy. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Pretty good, Chris. Right, uh, cl- completely it. appropriate, right? We can share that with our kids. I like it. That's a good that's one. Right. Well, that's right. That's what a dad joke is, though. That's exactly what a dad joke is. All right, to wrap things up, uh, the FBI got a court order to hack into some computers and remove a bunch of web shells. The greatest thing we fear in cybersecurity is. either a real-world attack, something that may be there, but we can't prove it. The PebCAC podcast celebrates being in the top 54% of all Apple's podcasts, and the hosts talk about their favorite real-world interview questions. That's all we have for this week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can find us all on LinkedIn. Links will be in the description. Just so you know, the battery life on your phone or smart device you're using to listen to us on just improved by 20% by listening to our podcast. If you know anyone else who would like 20% improved battery life, please share this podcast with them. The best way to find us is to search for the PebCAC podcast on your favorite podcasting app, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Stitcher. We'll see you all next week, and as always, have a nice day. Take care, guys. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.